Thank you for listening in today to episode number 11 of My Awakening Podcast. Clarence Presley is our guest today, and I hope will become a new friend and that we will have opportunities to work together on issues that we both care about. Current local events became a serious part of our podcast conversation due to the most recent Seattle City Council decision to begin budget reductions of the Seattle Police Department. I learned from Clarence's meaningful perspective on the reactionary process that is currently going on at City Hall in Seattle, and I hope you will too. Since Seattle is one of the first cities to take these actions, please listen and consider how your community might do a better job with restructuring police budgeting. So, let's get started. Well, Joe, first and foremost, thanks for having me on your podcast. I consider it an honor, and I am also looking forward to cultivating a friendship with you. And I really just want to say I appreciate the fact of what you're doing right now, this journey that you're on and this awakening process is very inspirational to me and it gives me hope, uh, not only as a man, but as a black man, it gives me hope that uh, we're seeing some things change. So thank you for having me on your show. Thanks, Clarence. Yeah. And so, yeah, my, my name is Clarence Presley. Um, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, so I'm originally from the South, uh, born into a community uh, really, I mean, I didn't know it at the time of, of poverty. You know, we were poor, <laughs> you know, I can laugh now, but we were poor. Uh, my mom had me when she was 19 and, uh, we lived with my grandparents and it was 13 of us living in a three bedroom, one bath house and, uh, Granite, uh, Heights community in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, a little 900 square foot rambler that my grandfather had purchased uh so yeah that's that's where i was born and um as a young lad uh, about the age of three uh we came to seattle washington on a visit to come visit my great grandmother and my great grandfather and during that vacation my mom found out that my grandmother was sick and she ended up finding a job here at seafirst bank uh, while we were on vacation and she did not return to Little Rock and kept me with her, uh, I would later go back. And so I would spend every other year in Little Rock and then in Seattle, back and forth, staying with my grandparents and eventually staying with my dad a little bit up until high school. Uh, but so I was raised in both places for the most part in Little Rock and uh, shaped with the Southern culture and the Bible Belt and then raised here in the Pacific Northwest, which was culture shock for me because the community that I was raised in in Little Rock was all black. Like, I mean, very seldom did I see any other group of people. I would see white people very seldom, <laughs> you know. And then when I moved to Seattle, I remember moving here and it was like this smorgasbord, this melting pot of people of, you know, uh, various Asian descents. I, uh, my, my, my neighborhood that we settled in over in West Seattle, uh, eventually, you know, put me smack dab, you know, uh, with a bunch of folks. I mean, when we came here, we were in the central district, obviously. Uh, then our first apartment was in South Seattle, but my mom eventually settled, uh, in West Seattle for a good chunk of my childhood. 
uh, over there off of Roxbury. And so neighbors were Filipino and Samoan and Cambodian and white. Uh, my best friend was Korean and white growing up. And it was just a really a different place in space than what I was accustomed to, you know, different cultures and uh, histories and food, you know, all of those things began to shape me, you know, at an early age. So, uh, and again, it was kind of like the tales of two cities because I would be here and then go <laughs> back to Little Rock like the next year and it will be all black again, you know, so I, I would get that experience and uh, it would really keep me, I believe, in tune with my black heritage and my culture, you know, and then come here and diversify so I can have uh, what I think now has uh, attributed to my development, to becoming the person that I am today, to be able to walk uh, in various circles and engage in different relationships with a bunch of beautiful people. So I'm really thankful for that. Did you graduate from high school then in Seattle? Yeah, I graduated in Seattle, actually in Tukwila. I was uh, I attended Rainier Beach High School, and then I graduated from Foster because my mom finally left that community we stayed in uh, over off of Roxbury, and we moved further south to uh, near the airport, the SeaTac area. Okay, and I think you shared with me the other day that you had uh, you have one sibling. Actually, I have one sibling with my mom, and then I have three additional siblings, younger siblings with my father. Okay. So uh, I have a total of four siblings, so three brothers and uh, one sister, and I'm the oldest. And do the, do the uh, siblings live in the area, or they're in Little Rock? Or uh, My one brother uh, lives here, uh, actually a few blocks away from me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then my... Uh, sister moved, she was here. She moved back to Little Rock last year. Uh, and I have a brother in Dallas and I have a brother in St. Louis. Okay. And can you share a little bit about your, uh, your own family today? Yeah, I'm, I'm married, uh, to my beautiful wife, Athena. We've been married for 20 years now. Um, and she and I together have three children and I have two older children, which is our children. We are a blended family. So we have a total of five children, my oldest being 24 and my youngest being 11. So I have my oldest is a girl, my youngest is a girl, and three boys in between. Yeah. And you said that three of them are are still at home with you and your wife? Yes. Yes. So my 19-year-old, 15-year-old, and 11-year-old are home with me. Uh, then I have a soon-to-be 21-year-old, soon-to-be 25-year-old that are out on their own. So do you feel like you got this parenting thing kind of figured out, or it's like uh, still a work in progress? It's a work in progress, man. What I realize is parenting adults is more is a, is a lot more tough than, I think, parenting kids. I mean, the kids take a lot more of your energy, but I think you're even more concerned the older that they get. You hope you did a good job in teaching them values and morals and, and being able to move out into the world. But I think, you know, for me specifically, having been being a black man and having black children, I'm constantly concerned when my children leave the home. You know, uh, I'm concerned if I'm going to get a phone call uh, that you get pulled over. My son was in an accident uh, a couple of weeks ago and got a phone call. And I just felt the need. I had to drive up to the space of the accident because I wanted to make sure that he was safe. 
And that may sound like paranoia, paranoia to a lot of folks, but it's my reality, you know, that I want to make sure that my kids are safe in whatever situation. It's just one of those things that we have to have some extra conversations before they leave the home just to make sure that they're being wise about if they get pulled over or whatnot. And that's not to say that, you know, all police officers are bad. I have police officers that are friends of mine. That, so I know that there's some great police officers. Speaking of which, hope you don't mind. Uh, special shout out to uh, Chief Best, Seattle Police Department. I was saddened to read last night that they were forced. They basically uh, defunded their department and cut her salary. And so she's chosen to retire uh, abruptly. And that is a sad, sad occasion for Seattle because she has been a huge blessing to our community. And when I say our, I'm not just talking about black community. I'm talking about all of Seattle community because she really cares. She and uh, Deputy Chief Adrian Diaz, they're some great people. So just wanted to give that plug real quick. Well, I had heard yesterday that the uh, council was fairly likely to make the choices of doing some serious defunding, but I didn't know that it actually had passed. I didn't get the news later in the day, and I hadn't heard that piece you just shared. So, wow. Yeah, they they, they did it. Uh, they wanted to go 50%. They're going to try to shoot for that in 2021. I am not uh, a fan of that at all. Uh, I understand reallocating some funds for the community, but you know you have to really have a strategy and approach that with some wisdom and not just out of, I think. So can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. I mean, I'd love your perspective on this and I'm sure the uh, listeners would like to hear this because it's really a current thing. Uh, I I had felt from the beginning when I heard defunding the police, it felt like a really poor choice of, um, what do you call it? Uh, Messaging the words that were chosen to indicate this idea defunding the police felt like whoever chose those words for the messaging of this was just that's just crazy uh and it was it's met with a lot of difficulty right off the bat what i'm amazed at i really i am surprised because it's a reactionary thing and i get that but to go as far as they're going even though I fully understand, like you say, reallocation and I get reducing the police budget and maybe adding some other um, resources in the community that are needed that cover some very specialized areas, mental health being one, I get that. But I'm really surprised that they're able and willing to go as far as they are. Why do you think, how have they gotten such support so quickly for something this dramatic? I. I believe it is based on history and emotion. And what I mean by that is uh, the history of brutality, uh, specifically police brutality in communities of color um, that has gone, excuse me, uh, without any true justice uh, for so long has now just kind of created a, a, a heightened level of emotion uh, that is creating a reaction. And I'm not saying I agree with you. I do believe there's some modifications needed. I think when you leave something untreated for so long, it sets up infection. 
You leave those wounds untreated for so long, infection sets up. And we know that infections, you know, can can create, you know, cause the body to, to, to break down, fever, become delusional. And I'm not calling the people who are for this delusional. I'm just saying, you know, desperation, the reaction of desperation to these situations, you know, you're so angry, you know, that you just begin to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's dangerous. I think that you have to really take a look at what's working and what's not. Uh, I'm okay. I'm like you. The language came across pretty strong to me when I first heard it, even in Minneapolis, defunding the police. And I had to get clarity from a friend of mine who was on the front line as an advocate who shared with me, no, what we're talking about now is reallocation of budget funds to create, you know, uh, third party watchdogs to make sure that uh, there's police accountability, uh, to make sure that there's resources like you mentioned for mental health uh, uh, and other aspects of who should be responding to certain calls. And as it was explained to explain to me that some calls shouldn't be uh, the police officer. Maybe there's some kind of public safety officer that can show up in community to deescalate situations. So why not create? They were saying why not create an extension of the force that that have more of a peace officer type of mentality to approach certain aspects so things don't become heightened. However. I think when you just start cutting budget, you start cutting staff uh, without looking at it strategically, you can leave yourself shorthanded for real crisis. And I think that it was rushed into. And I understand that people want things done now, like yesterday. Again, that's because the wound has been left untreated for so long. It has set up infection. And now people are just sick and tired of what's been their experience, that they just want something different. But to want something different, you need to think about what different looks like and bring everyone to the table. So why is that why is that piece missing? I guess that's a part I don't understand. I get I get the intensity of the uh pushback from the uh folks that are, you know, doing these demonstrations and all I, I get all of that and they're and they're getting attention for sure but to have gotten the attention that quickly for change happening that fast that should be uh, a thoughtful government process that we don't need to jump like you say from the frying pan into the fire and yet that feels like what we might be, we, we're going to regret this well I, 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 I don't think this is that's I mean, yeah, I think there's two major things going on. One, it's an election year. So politics is going to play into this thing. But I think, too, the the second thing is what you said. uh, Why so fast? Why not let government take its time and deal with it? The, The real answer is, again, I go back to history. There's been a lot of things that's been said, changes were going to be made, and we're going to do due process. You know, we're going to let government handle it, and it gets tucked away. So I think right now there's this intense desire 
to see change now. But the reality is we do need change now, but we need to really be careful in how we approach it. We don't need to go through what I call the spaghetti test. You know, just throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. We really we really need to bring some people together. And and again, who's being invited to the table, right? Typically, from my position, I see either your extreme left or extreme right, you know, coming to the table. But there's not a lot of folks that are moderate around the table. You know, there's not a, it's, it's either you want it either this way or that way. And it's one of those things that I share all the time is the either or mentality versus a both and. We need more both and people, the capacity to see things and say, you know what? What you're saying, there's some truth to that. Now, maybe not all of it, but maybe can we look at this and look at that and find a way to make this thing work so that we can look out for the benefit of all people, right? And we do still need to recognize and identify that there is abuse and there is trauma in the black community, in the Latino community, in other communities of color that we need to address now because this, this school to prison pipeline, you know, even what they're seeing right now in Los Angeles with, you know, they're finding out in Compton, California, there's basically a, 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 a police gang. You know, they got a tattoo of a skull with a, a Nazi hat on. And they are literally going out, wiping people out and sending them to prison, ruining their lives. So they just uncovered this thing. How do you deal with this stuff? So we, we have to get more voices at the table. And I know, you know, the big thing that I hear, you know, and I understand, and I want to say that first, I understand that people are saying, you know what, it's time out for talking. We've been talking for too long. But you know, at the end of the day, if you don't talk, you don't get an understanding. You got to get an understanding, you know, uh, and, and and set some go some timelines and some goals, you know, to get an understanding if possible. But you, you can't just push things through without having dialogue. Do you think that uh, part of the difficulty of who to bring to the table is that it's a bit uh, undefined relative to the demonstrators. They aren't representing a group necessarily or something that you can wrap your hands or arms around and, and define it fairly clearly. So who, who do you invite to, to the table that represents the demonstrators? Well, I, How do you do that? I, and and that's, a, that's an interesting question. I can share with you what I think is happening. I think that they already have specific leaders. I know it to be true because I know a couple of them that represents the demonstrators, but the demonstrators don't represent all the people because they're selecting specific groups of demonstrators. And it, it goes back to old to the old adage that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So the people that are being invited to the table are the ones who are making the most noise, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that they represent all of the people or even a majority of the people. I mean, I, I can share with you that last night when I saw the news announcement that Seattle police got defunded in that police chief Bess, Carmen Bess, uh, was retiring because it's just too much. I mean, they've got, people have gone to this woman's personal home and tried to protest, those are no-nos. Like, 
No. And now they've defunded her, cut her salary, cut half of the the budget for officers. So she's just retiring. She's done. She's over it. It saddens me. And I can tell you from most of the black community that I know, uh, and, and I'm not ashamed to say this, specifically those that are uh, faith-based, whether you're Christian or Muslim or whatever, in, in the community of Seattle, most of the people that I know are for Chief Best. But if you would have watched the news the last three to four months, you would think that black people are against Chief Best. And that's just not true. Most of us are saddened that she's leaving because she was advocating for all of community, all of Seattle, but she was advocating to bring resources, resource officers, training, building relationships, which I think is key. She was dealing with training her officers to develop relationships with community. And if you couldn't do that, you shouldn't be policing that neighborhood. And so I know firsthand, you know, that she has been well vested in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And it's a sad day to see her, you know, basically be pushed out of a position, you know, a, a, a key position like the police chief, you know, indirectly from what people would be saying is Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter, you're saying, is pushing a black woman out of a position. That saddens me. Yeah. You know, well, I I sensed a uh, a weakening of those bonds, I guess, and I I don't know exactly how to say this, but that she was being um, her some of her authority and whatnot was being set aside or not recognized or not um, respected appropriately when she did not make the decision. Uh, or at least I didn't gather that she was the one that actually made the decision to abandon the the precinct uh, office in in the um, what was it chop there East Precinct yeah so uh, she was very closed she she didn't say much but I really read behind the line or between the lines there when she was interviewed after that that it wasn't her decision yeah and uh, so that decision was the start for me thinking about, wait a minute, the police chief is not at the table and making a decision like that? What is going on? So it felt like there was other parties in control there that are outside of her, you know, maybe above her pay grade. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so I felt like there was, you know, things were not going well when that happened. And uh, I know they they took that back and everything, but still, that was a that was a tough that was a tough pill to swallow right there. And I could understand her thinking the way she is, and not surprised that she has decided on this just for her own health and safety. I think, and peace of mind. I think going forward, she's trying to uh, find a way to um, maintain some sanity of her own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she definitely was being undercut, and you're absolutely right. She came out, <clears throat> excuse me, she she came out with a statement, uh, as you mentioned, that said that was not her decision uh, to abandon East Precinct. That was not her decision, but she was made the face of that, as if she told that precinct to to leave and to abandon their their uh, precinct. It was not her, and and what a lot of people don't know. 
about Chief Bess is that she was highly sought sought after by other cities. I'm talking about major cities that wanted her even when she was still a deputy chief under the previous chief. But she was vested. She wanted to be in Seattle. She could have left. She could have went south. I won't say the places, but she had other opportunities. But this was home for her. And she wanted to be here. She wanted to see the change happen in our community. And unfortunately, you know, and I'll say it like this, politics got the best of the situation. And it painted her, I think, in an image. uh, It doesn't taint her character, but it made her look powerless. And I think that she, people forget that she inherited a bunch of the stories that people are saying about SPD. That wasn't under her watch. Right. Now, I'm not saying some things didn't happen under her watch because it's still an entire system. You can't, you can't turn a ship quickly. You know, it takes time. But I did see her making progress with addressing issues. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a fine line that she has to toe, you know, to make sure that, you know, the officers are respecting the community and, and, uh, being peace officers and displaying, you know, uh, character and also still honoring and respecting what keeps the, her officers safe. So I get it. It's a tension there. You know, you want to make sure that they're being respectful of community, but you also want them to be respected you know, and again, I'm saying things that a lot of people will probably be upset with me for saying, but it's the truth. You know, we all want respect, but I was taught a long time ago to be respected. You have to give it. So we have to give respect to receive respect. And she's definitely a woman uh, that I respect, a black woman who I respect, who have, who has done, I think, a tremendous job in the short amount of time that she was in this position. Where do you think we go from here? I mean, I know it's brand new since yesterday afternoon, but what is your what is your sense of that? I don't know. It's scary. Uh, you know, if they're going to do another uh, candidacy and bring in people, one, you just uh, chopped off 100000 from the pay grade. So is it even competitive to bring in someone of quality from outside? Or do you look within? If they look within, my recommendation would be uh, Adrian Diaz because he gets it. He knows the community. That's been his life work in the force. He's been developing. He's been the the cog in this thing of developing community. But if they're going to look outside, I don't know. It's again, I don't think it was thought out. You know, I don't think they thought she would walk away so quickly. You know, you're going to reduce her salary and then. If that's going to be the reduction of the salary from this point on, and other cities that are that are equal in size are paying more, you got, you got to think about it. You know, who are you going to bring in? What type? What what what's the quality of the candidates you're going to bring in, or is it just someone just trying to make a name for themselves? So yeah. I don't know. That is it's kind of scary. Yeah. Well, I should be uh, staying up on the news a little better. Obviously, I didn't get tuned in last night. Um, well, I think uh, I had heard that she actually is, for, or she grew up in Tacoma here. I'm not sure that's true. But, yeah. 
Um, so I, I just heard that recently. Um, you live in, uh, in the, somewhere between Seattle and Tacoma. Yeah. So I live in federal way. Okay. Um, but you're pretty connected in Seattle. Yeah. I'm a, most of my connections to Seattle, yeah. um, most of the work that I've done in community, uh, my church, uh, all these things are Seattle, South Seattle, um, primarily, but it has expanded to South King County and now, uh, reaching even into Pierce with relationships in Tacoma and uh, as far as Puyallup, you know, we started a youth football league a few years ago that I founded that uh, went from Seattle uh, all the way out to Lakewood. So, oh, wow. uh, so we've cultivated a lot of relationships. Was that how you got to know Josh then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, not in my league, but that's how we met was through football, youth football. Yeah, yeah, I think you mentioned that to me. So... um you already touched on this, but I had made a note to myself to be sure to ask um, what your thoughts were about protesters going so far as showing up at the homes of the mayor and the city council member and Chief Best. And this is happening around the country, this sort of uh, engagement with protesters, uh, bringing it home, I guess you would say, making it very personal. Uh, and you made the comment, I think, that that's that's crossing the line. Um, given that you described uh, a, a bit ago that this sort of reactionary stuff that we're seeing with this uh, really um, dramatic level of decision-making on budgets for the police in Seattle is driven by this... Um, uh, disease that's been untreated for an awful long time isn't that really the same thing it's like well we haven't we haven't gotten attention to the degree we obviously needed to to really bring change because we've had lots of lots of words and lots of promises and lots of people you know smiling and nodding their heads but no real change yeah. And so don't you think that this taking it personal to the level of going to people's homes is an, is just kind of another step from that level? I do. I You know, I totally get why it's being done. Uh, the desperation, obviously, you know. Uh, but when you're going to someone's personal home, you know, and they have families, you know, I, I can get how that can become a very ugly situation. Yeah. When someone feels like their personal uh, life, their family may be under the duress or in some form of uh, trouble, you know, the anxiety levels are high. But I get it. I get why I get why the um, protesters are doing it, because yeah. like, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, when you have when you felt neglected and you felt unheard for so long. It's by any means necessary. You know, you're willing to go where you need to go or have to go in order to be heard. And in today's day, with media being the way it is, and what I mean by that, you don't need to wait for a camera crew when someone can pick up a cell phone and start broadcasting and it goes viral. So they want the state, they want you uncomfortable. And and, and I think to some degree, uncomfortability is uh, the beginning of change. 
you know, the way that I kind of uh, look at it, just for example, uh, if, if you want your body to change uh, as an athlete, you're going to put yourself through various conditioning that makes you very uncomfortable. So change typically is birthed out of our uncomfortability. It doesn't happen. It's, it's an agitation in a sense that takes place for us to recognize change is necessary. And so I see the strategy. I understand it. Um, but boy, it, it can be very difficult. Uh, you know, I, I think right off the top of my head of, um, and, and it's probably not related to this, but I can only imagine the pain that that judge felt in New Jersey of having someone come to her home and uh, shoot her son and her family members. I mean, that is tragic, you know, uh, for doing your job. And, you know, some people don't get it and they, they're thinking, you know, down with government, but you still, we're still dealing with people, right? And who have families. But on the flip side, I think that you're seeing protests happening because they're saying, well, what about all the unknown people that weren't judges, that aren't police chiefs, that aren't politicians, whose families are being traumatized every single day in the ghetto, in the community, from profiling to being pulled out their car, to being killed, to you know, doors being kicked in on their homes. You know, they're saying, what about all those stories? People say, well, look at the numbers. You can see the numbers. Well, there's a ton of numbers that were never reported, right? People say, well, there's there's been more uh, uh, police killing of white men than of black. That's what's documented, right? And there's a lot of things that, and you got to understand the population outnumbers white people outnumber black people as well in America. But these are the things that I think the protesters are upset about. They're saying, what about the the, the unpopular, the, the underrepresented? Who's going to represent them? Well, that's why we're here. We're coming together because if one person shows up, you won't hear us. But if 10,000 show up, maybe you'll hear us. I think the listeners... A lot of the listeners, I'll say, maybe also mostly have been mostly comfortable. Myself is certainly, I'm including myself in that. Uh, so this idea of living in a space of discomfort most of the time and recognizing that you have to kind of be uh, aware of your surroundings a little bit more, um, that's not a space that many of us have are familiar with. Yeah, you know, I, I, I shared with you earlier that I don't think I know what being comfortable is because we live with some degree of discomfort every day. Um, you know, I, I can give examples. I, I've noticed people say things like, you know, LeBron James, why is he protesting? He doesn't experience this. Well, yeah, he does. I don't care how much money he makes and how famous he is. He's still a black man who's being told when he wants to speak up, shut up and dribble. Or he comes home to a newly built home he's building in Brentwood, California, uh, and he has nigger written all over his fence. You know, so, yeah, you we can for, for us as black people. Uh, I don't think there's ever a time we actually ever feel comfortable. 
The only time that we feel somewhat comfortable is when we're in our own homes. And even then, you're not totally at peace. You know, uh, I was talking to some folks about this recently. And they was like, man, you know, it was someone posted it on, on social media. They said, I don't ever feel totally safe. You know, and, and to give you a little bit of uh, perspective on this, a group of men were actually having this conversation on social media and they were talking about the trauma, you know, the trauma that black men specifically have been dealing with, even in their own homes, many times, uh, according to this social media post, many of the black men were saying, I'm angry at home because one, I don't feel like I can totally protect my family, whether they have a weapon or not. You know, the fear of knowing, like I mentioned to you, every time that my kids leave, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. I don't, it's not this, you know, if my kids are out, I don't typically, I don't sleep until they come home because I'm concerned that I'm going to get a call and that's not comfort, you know? Right. And and so those are some of the things that, and, and people can say, well, I feel the same way, but it's, it's a little different. You know what I mean? That, uh, when, when I take my family, here, here's something to consider about comfort. Uh, many, many years ago in, in, in U.S. history, uh, black people, if they wanted to travel, they used a green book. And there was a movie that came out about it, the green book. Really yeah. good movie. Yeah, we've seen it. The, the fact of the matter is we still use the green book without having a physical green book. Like for me, I have to be very intentional about what area I'm traveling to. Like there's certain places that look beautiful, but I know that I can't take my family to and feel comfortable being there. Uh, a young lady that I know, she's married to an older white man. Uh, she just relocated back to Oregon and they went to vacation in Idaho. And while there in the town, they were harassed and no one said a word. I mean, brought her to tears. You know, there's just certain spaces and places that you just, you avoid. Like, I can't just stop off at any bed and breakfast and feel comfortable. If I decided to do a road trip from Seattle to Little Rock, you know, I have to map out where am I going to stay? What city do we want to stay in? You know, what community? To the best of my ability and my mm -hmm. knowledge, because to this day, 2020, we're in the year 2020 and we can't just, you know, stop in any town and say it's okay and we're going to be comfortable being there because as we were talking earlier, there's some towns, small towns across the country, they may tolerate it, but they don't really want you there. It's different. I've seen the differences in even some of the resort areas on how uh, white families are treated differently from my family. We were waiting in the same restaurant. This happened to me at Leavenworth. They skipped us for four other families and did not give us a table and got angry when we asked about it. This was only four years ago. So those are the kind of things when we're talking about comfort, even if you make, make good money, even if you do have a decent yeah. home, you still in the society that we live in, you know, 
it still isn't equitable. You know, people think, oh, everything's great. And yeah, I, you, I have black friends and they're doing great. You don't understand what hoops they have to go through. What are the extra hurdles they have to jump just to be even in those circles and in those spaces and still at the end of the day, what they go through in their thought process, you know? So it, it's, it's a different dynamic. And that's what we were talking about uh, the other day when I was sharing with you that I think certain people, they're saying, well, hey man, I'm not racist. And I think what people are saying is I'm not prejudiced. There is a difference between racism and prejudice. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, that's a big thing for folks to understand so they can gain a little bit of clarity about what's going on. Because I think a lot of people get offended or they're uncomfortable talking about race because they're saying, hey, I'm not a racist. You may not be specifically a racist, but you benefit from a systemically racist system. And whether you're intentionally doing anything in that to bring harm to other people, it doesn't really matter if you are, because even if you're unintentionally doing it and you're operating in that system of privilege, somebody's affected by it, believe it or not. And it doesn't make you a mean, hateful person because you're not prejudiced. You're not judging them by their skin color, but you are directly benefiting from a system that continues to oppress people that doesn't give them the equal access of power that you have. Our next episode will be part two of Clarence's conversation where he will explain about the power that most of us may not think we have. And he will help us to understand the difference between prejudice and racism. You don't want to miss this next episode. Thanks to Clarence for being our guest on episode number 11 today. It was helpful for us to hear his perspective on the beginning efforts of reducing police funding that is currently underway in Seattle, plus more of Clarence's thoughts on racism as well. I hope that this conversation was thought-provoking for you as it was for me. Remember to begin educating yourself about systemic racism and what is really going on with our long-standing racial problems by going to the resources section at the bottom of our website at myawakeningpodcast.com. If hearing from Clarence today was meaningful for your journey, we hope you will subscribe to and share our podcast with your friends. You can now listen to and share this podcast using our website, Facebook, YouTube, or your favorite podcast player. Please go to our Facebook page and leave any comments you may have about this or past episodes. Stay tuned for next week's episode number 12, which is part two of my conversation with Clarence. I hope this podcast helps move us all towards becoming better citizens in a more diverse America. Remember that together we can make the systemic changes that are needed to heal America's racial divide and achieve justice for all. Come on, come on.